So, before we get started, we're going to talk about the new Jerusalem going first, and then the new heaven and new earth. So that's so chapter 21, then chapter 22. So first, before we get into it, we're going to do a quick review. We're, so if you were to look at this chart, so you see the present church age, right? After the present church age, you have the rapture of the church. That's when Jesus meets up, up in the air. So we believe that the second coming happens in two phases. First, you have the rapture, and then what's called the second coming or the glorious appearing. That's all where you see um, second coming. So after the rapture of the church, the tribulation doesn't necessarily start right away. That's a seven-year troublesome time to say. What's going to kick that off is that the Antichrist... He's going to make a seven-year covenant with Israel. That's the kicking point. After about three and a half years, he's going to break that covenant. And then you're going to have the abomination of desolation. He's going to make himself out to be God. All right? And then you're going to have the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years. It's quite literally hell on earth. You have the mark of the beast coming down, and people are not going to be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And then you have the glorious appearing of Jesus. He touches down. So the rapture, he meets, we meet him up in the air. The second coming, the glorious appearing, he actually touches down. So this is where judgment happens. So he judges the entire, uh, all the people that are unbelievers. He judges all of them. Um, Satan is bound up for a thousand years, and that's where the millennial reign be begins. That's what uh, Pastor Jay went over last week. And then you have the final judgment. And then now we're going to go through the eternal state, what it's going to be like in eternity with Christ. All right. So if you're confused, see one of us afterwards. We'll hopefully clarify it. Okay, so the first main point, we're going to talk about the city, the new Jerusalem. So let's explain the place. By the way, throughout this entire study tonight, it's going to be big bullet points, so you can outline the whole thing. So you'll be able to outline the last two chapters. So starting in verse 1, chapter 21 in Revelation. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So John, the apostle John, seeing this and saw a new heaven, new earth, the old earth was destroyed. Gone. Finito. Here's what it says in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct, in godliness, looking for the hastening that um, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens, the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is where I believe that quite literally everything is gone brand spanking new. I think this is going to be Edenic. It's going to be like Eden on earth, but even better than Eden. 
Make sense? So, now we have the picture. Going to verse 2, chapter 21. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So I take this quite literally that John saw this vision of Jerusalem coming down. I don't know, that's pretty wild though. Imagine that you're seeing this great revelation given to you by Jesus himself, and you see Jerusalem coming down. And then later you're going to see it's actually measured out. <laughs> so just as a bride adorned for her groom. Now the people. In verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God is with his people and shall dwell with them forever. Notice it says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. No more tabernacle, no more temple. He is the temple, he is the tabernacle, and he will dwell with them. So you will literally be able to see the face of God, at least Jesus Christ, right? This is a glorious time of perfection that he's describing, something that's going to happen in the future. One thing is, whether you're a premillennialist, whether you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, you generally come to the understanding that this is going to be eternity. So this is something that we all agree on, generally. Now, some have a few wacky views, but we're not going to talk about them. So number two, we have the blessing. Contentment. In verse four, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is the passage of no mores. The things that are mentioned are completely gone. The old way of life is completely done with. So imagine a life that there's no more tears. How about death? You know how people say death's natural? It's, one, it's the most unnatural thing. You're happy when a baby's born, Correct? People get excited. When people die, people mourn. They grieve. People go into complete depression over death. It's an unnatural thing. It was never supposed to be. So at this point, there is no more death. No more pain. Do any of you guys ever experience pain? Physical, emotional, otherwise. Imagine no more pain, no more hardship. Could you imagine that? You can't because your entire life you've dealt with some type of pain, some type of hardship, some type of sorrow. You've cried. But this perfect time with God is going to be, I don't think there's a word for it. 
I would say blissful, but it doesn't do it justice. So now you have Christ. In verses 5 to 6, it says that he who sat on the throne, referring to Jesus, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. See, God, he made all things new. I don't believe this is some kind of repair job or some kind of major overhaul. I think it's absolutely new. Now, at the moment, we're talking about the new Jerusalem, which is the apex of the new creation. It's suspended between heaven and earth. It's quite literally, once again, a brand new Eden. See, the words are faithful and true. He is the first and the last. He gives the water of life, just like the woman at the well, right? In John chapter 4. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. It is the fountain of everlasting life. See, when he gives of this fountain, he says it's done. It's finished. Jesus says it's finished when? At his crucifixion. And God does it after the sixth day. He said he was finished with his creation. It's finished. It's done. So one thing is, when God says it's done, it's done. You know the, per- the person that says something's done and you don't really believe them? The kind of that person like, yeah, it's done. No, it really isn't. I used to be a project manager, and every time I used to go see the subcontractors, usually the painters, they're the worst, right? I used to go there, and it's like, yeah, it's done. I see pieces all missing. I see, like, everything's, like, it's one color is a different shade than another. Or if I had my, my punch list guys there, they were doing, you know, I, I give them a list of a punch list, and they just forgot, you know, sometimes half of it. And they had to go back and all that stuff. But here, you can absolutely trust it is done because he says, write for these words are true and faithful. And then he is the alpha and then the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the first and the last. He is the creator of the entire world. Without him, we have no redemption. And he says, it is done, as he did on the cross. Now we have comfort. Here's our comfort. In verse 7, he says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Overcomers will inherit all things. So here's a cross-reference here. To, if you go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, it says, He... Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, another reference to eternity, which is in the midst of the, uh, the paradise of God. Now, 
verse 11, chapter 2 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who what? Overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You will not experience hell if you overcome. Those are, that's a direct reference to believers in Jesus Christ. You become an, you're an overcomer when you're a believer. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I'm an eternal securist. So I think that once you're truly saved, you're truly saved. So if you're saved, you die the next day, you go to heaven. Quite literally, the criminal on the cross. I know they say thief. He wasn't a thief. He was a hard-nosed criminal. <laughs> Rebel, whatever you want to, yeah, I know there's a bunch of different theories on it. But ultimately, he said he will be with him in paradise. Condemnation. Now, in verse 8, it says, but, but. So first you got the overcomers, right? They will inherit eternal life. Now you have the but. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You have a contrast here of nine categories that will be uh, rejected. Ungodly, unrepentant, unbelieving multitudes, which introduce, they introduce what hell is going to be like because they experience something that we have no idea what it's going to be like. So you have the overcomers, and then you have the ones that are going to experience the second death. So this goes to show that you're either saved or you're not saved. There's no fence city. There's no, well, I'm kind of a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm kind of a Christian. No. They will be cast into the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. There is no second chance for the second death. That's it. This is life. This life is all you got. You either believe in this life or you don't believe in this life. So, for those who think that hell is a theoretical concept, I thought of that. So I gave you nine... Um, References to hell in the scriptures. Yeah? First, hell will be a place of unquenchable fire. It will be a place of memory and remorse. It will be a place of thirst. It will be a place of misery and pain. It will be a place of frustration and anger. It will be a place of separation. See, here you could experience joy, right? Whether you're a believer or not, you could experience joy. Yeah? You can nod your head. You can be happy once in a while. Go out, have a meal, enjoy something. Here, there is no joy. There is no peace at all. There is a complete separation from anything that is godly. People say, well, you know what? I'll go party in hell. I'm like, you're not partying in hell at all. 
You can think that all you want. Or you think you've been through hell. Oh, I assure you not. This place is eternal. I know there's uh, people that, you know, are annihilationists that say if you go to hell, you go to hell for a period of time and then your soul's annihilated, you know, just popped out. It's not eternal torment. No, I take the scriptures quite literally and say that it's eternal torment. So this place of separation is a place of undiluted divine wrath. It was originally prepared for Satan and his hosts, and it will be an eternal place. This should give us the yearning to go share the gospel because we don't want people to experience that. Now, here's the reality. People are going here by their own choice, I think. I think there's God's sovereignty and the human responsibility. I think you're chosen but free. We're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> we got enough to go through. But ultimately, people do have a choice. So now we move to three. Now we're going to go through the construction of the new Jerusalem. So now we go through the show. In verses 9 to 11, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. I think the greatest part about the holy city is that it's being, what's being emphasized here is the Shekinah glory of God. See, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory rested in the Ark of the Covenant and in the Holy of Holies. See, but the prophet Ezekiel tells us that his glory departed before the final destruction of Solomon's temple. You can see that in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 4, 9, 3, 10, 4, verse 18, and eleven twenty three. I like to make points. See... The builders of the second temple, they prayed for the glory to return. See, there's no record that it actually ever did. And you can look at that in Haggai uh, 2, 7-9. For over 400 years, the temple was dark and empty. It was a symbol of Israel's empty rituals. See, no glory, no power. It wasn't until Christ was born and the angels appeared. They announced the birth of a Savior, the King of the Jews... And they sang glory to God in the highest. See, at the time of Christ, he was rejected by many in Israel. And the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, the third temple is supposed to be rebuilt. And that is during the tribulation period. And it will not bring back the glory in itself. That third temple does not. I believe the glory starts at the second coming or the glorious appearing. And that's when it actually happens on earth. And then you see the complete Shekinah glory in the new Jerusalem. See, it's expressed 
mostly in the New Jerusalem, and the glory symbolizes the presence of God with his people. This is a different type of life. Remember, no more sorrow, no more suffering, perfection in the presence of God consistently. Now the stature. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. The names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. It was a square. Then he measured its wall 140 cubits according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. See, the 12s are speaking of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. See, the apostles are the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. See, I believe this is symbolizing that in this place you will see the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers dwelling in one place under Christ. Now the stones. Verses 18 to 21. The construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, and the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, (laughs) sardonyx, sorry. The sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, or chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Here's what this reminds me automatically of. If you were to look at Exodus chapter 28, 17, and 20, you see the stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel was put on the high, priest, uh, the high priest's uh, breastplate. You shall put the settings of the stones, four rows of stones. First row shall be sardius, topaz, emerald. And shall be the first, uh, that, this shall be the first row. And the second row shall be turquoise and sapphire and diamonds. The third row, jacinth, a gate. Amethyst, and the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in a gold settings. So you see the correlations here of precious stones to symbolize the foundation of the church where were the apostles and the prophets, right? And the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is going to be in the New Jerusalem. Now, number four, we have the cleanliness. 
Just so you know, this is technically two large sermons into one. So, bless your heart for staying here. Peace. Revelation 21, 22 to 23. But I saw no temple in it, for the, Lamb, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. There is no darkness since Christ is the light. Imagine a place with no sun. Imagine a place with no lights, quite literally. Imagine no fire to, for light. No flashlights. You can't bring out your phone. The glory of God just shines everywhere. I had someone ask me, do you think there's going to be shadows in heaven? And I said, you know, I threw up my hands. I was like, I don't know. But if the glory of God's everywhere, I don't think we would have shadows. Just someone asked me that one time, and I didn't have an answer at the time. So that's my answer now. Now you have the people. Verse 24, and the nations of those who are saved will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. All God's children will be there bringing honor and praise into, unto the Lord. Remember, every knee shall bow. Now all believers just start worshiping and honoring God consistently. And this is a place where we should be because we ought to be worshiping and praising God consistently. This doesn't mean you go into your prayer closet for 24 hours a day and live a monastic lifestyle. Some of you want to do that. I get that. But you have to be out in the world. Everyone saves. Dwelling in the glory of God, worshiping him. Now we have the place. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So if there's no night, the gates are open all day. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Imagine no nighttime. There is no more darkness. It is constantly light. Because you don't need sleep. You're no longer in this flimsy tent, as Paul calls it. You're in a glorified state with a glorified God on a glorified earth with a new Jerusalem. And now you have the purity. But there shall be no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only the pure, who are the pure, those who are made pure through salvation and faith in Jesus Christ, that you were redeemed by his crucifixion and resurrection, will be, ent will be able to enter in this holy place. Imagine no more crime. 
Imagine no more lies. No more evil. No more wars. No more news. No more bad things happening. The new Jerusalem. So now we go to the second part of our study. Revelation chapter 22, the new heaven and earth. Getting through this pretty quick. So the first point is wonder. Starting in verse 1, chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Here's what we see in Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12. Along the bank of the river on this side and, and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. This is the river of life it's referring to. Now look, in verse 2 in chapter 22 of Revelation, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each yielding fruit, uh, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nation. So this is referring to the tree of life. So Now Revelation 2, 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, he is the living water, and in paradise, we will have the tree of life. In verses 3 to 5, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The removal of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. His name is on people's foreheads. No night once again. God will give the light. And God's people reign forever. This is another amazing blessing that God gives us. One, he gives us eternal life, right? You put your faith in Jesus, you're saved by faith and faith alone. No works. You can be the worst person in the world, but you put your faith in Jesus. Truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. But he doesn't just say that. He says, then they will, shall reign forever and ever. He doesn't just give you eternity, lets you dwell in it. He allows you to reign in it. <laughs> you get to reign over eternity, too. That's an amazing concept. I always wonder why people wouldn't want to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest deal in the world. 
Do you understand that every deal that you have, if you're in business, do you understand there's a give and take? Usually if you're going to buy something, right, you have to, what, give money and you get that thing? It's a give and take. Relationships in this world require what? Give and take. All he wants is your faith. <laughs> That's what separates us from any other faith or religion. Everything requires works. Look at all of them. I was just examining this cult called the true, the first true church of Jesus Christ or something like that. Um, he is all about works. Work, 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 work to maintain your salvation. Work, 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 work to get your salvation. Work, 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 work. Give me money, give me money, give me money. It's a cult. Cults do that. Islam, you have to follow the five pillars, and guess what? You don't even know if you're going to be saved. It's maybe. You don't know what sect of Islam is going to go to heaven. And in Islamic theology, if you're a good person, you still may go to heaven even if you're not a Muslim. Just throw that out there. So they're very confused in their soteriology, the study of salvation. Here, we're straightforward. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, number two, we have our worship. So you have this angel in verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. See, the angel showed John the things that are about to come to pass or soon to come to pass. So he's analyzed this. Now you get your, he gets your attention. So every time you see this in Scripture, every time you see behold, pay attention. More than you're supposed to be. It says, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Christ is coming soon. What soon? It's up to him. Blessed are those who keep his testimony. Blessed are those who are ready. See, Christ, he's coming quickly. Soon, suddenly. See, Christ's return is completely imminent. It's going to happen. So if you look at chapter, uh, verse 7, 12, and 20 of this chapter, regardless of what you view of your end times, you know he's coming again. So we know this is imminent. This is a literal thing. Now you have your affection. In verses 8 and 9, it says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So John has his angels show him this grand scenery, and he falls down and worships this angel. You know what the amazing thing is? Now, obviously, I think he was wrong for falling down to worship an angel, but I, I get where he was going. And I wonder... What would you do if you saw the same thing that John saw? 
Would you fall down and prostrate yourself before that angel? This is an apostle who quite literally lived with Jesus for three, three and a half years. Quite literally, was taught by Christ himself. And then he sees an angel in his grand vision. This also goes to show is that how much honor and respect would he give God? How much more? Think once again, he was wrong for doing that. And, you know, the angel, you know, rebukes him, says that I'm one of your fellow servants. But how much honor and glory do we give God? Would we fall on our face even before God? I wonder that with many people who call themselves Christians. Would, if Christ appeared right now, what would you do? Would you prostrate yourself and fall on your face? Because that would be the proper response. <laughs> or would you say, hey, JC, what's up, bro? I hope you don't say that. I don't think we would because I think we would have um, an understanding. But think about that and then translate that to your daily life. I'm not saying you have to live, once again, a monastic lifestyle and prostrate yourself in your, your closet and pray all day. But how much honor are we giving to God? So obviously the angel was perfect here. And he said, for the angel in respect and honor. But the angel, he, he warned. He said, do not bow. He is a fellow servant. Now we are created a little lower than the angels. And that is an amazing concept because angels understand far more than we do. They are quite literally in the presence of God. And he says, no, don't worry, man. We're, we're fellow servants. That is a servant's heart, which the applicable thing would be, it doesn't matter what position you are in the church, you're a fellow servant of your brethren or your sisters. Now three, you have a warning. A lot of John's writings have warnings. Sacred. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. See, it's interesting here. Because if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, he says to shut this book. Interesting. But John was told to keep the book open so that the church can read this prophecy. Understand, the book of Revelation is a prophecy. A bunch of little prophecies in it, but it's ultimately a one large prophecy. So we ought to be reading this, and we should be studying prophecy, because 27% of the Bible is prophecy. So people that do not want to study eschatology, the study of last things, are missing a good chunk of Scripture. So we need to study all aspects of Scripture. And listen, sometimes it gets a little weird, I know. It talks about lampstands and bold judgments and a tribulation period, and you have an antichrist and an abomination of desolation. All these things freak you out. You're like, what's going on? I had a woman actually read one time. She, the first book she read of the Bible was Revelation. She wasn't a believer either. So you, that conversation was really weird. And she was asking me all these questions, and she started Googling things. Don't Google things. Please don't Google things. Because you get some wacky stuff. Like, 
the locusts coming out, people are like, those are helicopters. No, they're UFOs. What? I think they're actual locusts, but, you know, I'm a literal guy. But God called us to read all this. He wants us to read Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. Sin. Now, in verse 11, he says, He was unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. The fulfillment of the revelation is so that soon to come, that men who have little time, they will have little, little time to repent. See, the saints are to be faithful until the end, as it says in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. He will come, and people will not have time to repent. You can't drag people into the kingdom of heaven. You can share the gospel. You can show them Christ's likeness through your actions. But ultimately, if people want to be unrighteous, they're going to be unrighteous. I want you to think about that too, people going to hell, because that's going to be one of your questions. Now we have Savior. In verses 12 to 13, it says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Christ will reward men according to their works. Christ is the first and the last and the Alpha and the Omega. Remember, there's going to be two judgments. You have what's called the Great White Throne Judgment, which is for all those who are unbelievers. They'll be judged according to their works. And all I know is this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then for the wages of sin is death. Yet, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, now the Bema seen of Christ, right? Bema, believers. If you can't, that's the easy way to remember it. Bema, believers, right? Or the judgment seat of Christ. That's for believers. And you'll be judged and given crowns or rewards for what you have done with the time you have been a believer. Now, ultimately, the great white throne judgment ends up in the second death. Salvation. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gate into the city. Those who follow Christ will be able to enter the new Jerusalem. Now we have another sin one. In verse 15, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Sin will remain outside the city for inside the city will be holy. Now the star. In verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. In Christ, the line of the Messiah has both 
its origin and completion in Christ. And as the bright and morning star, now notice, in, throughout Scripture, you'll see morning star. That'll refer to an angel. But if you see bright and morning star, that's referring to Jesus himself. Now, number four, whosoever. Water. And the spirit of the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This, quite literally, is the last the last invitation for salvation in the Bible. There is none after this. Whoever so is thirsty may drink of the water of life and be satisfied forever. And that water is free for all people. The last call for salvation. This goes to show that there will be one last person. At one point, the last person will be saved, and that is it. So I urge you and I plead with you that if you haven't received Jesus into your life, I pray that you do that tonight. I pray that you have, you put your faith and you receive the Holy Spirit, and then now your, whole, your entire destination has changed you go from damnation to glorification in an instant. And here's the warning. Last call for salvation. Now we got a warning. So you got sin, the salvation, and now the warning. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things... God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So anyone who adds to God's word will receive the plagues in this book. Some people add things to try to prove their doctrine. Read the Bible for what it says. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. It's going to work out bad for you in the end. And anyone who takes away from God's word will not have his name in the book of life. And will not see the holy city. Accept his word as it is. Here's what Bruce Metzger would say. When books were copied by hand, scribes would occasionally add comments of their own or leave out words they thought were unsuitable. John, therefore, includes at the end of his book a solemn warning declaring that nothing should be added or deleted for the very reason that it is the revelation of God. I feel bad for the translators of the New World Testament. Or translation. <laughs> translation, yeah the Jehovah's Witness translation. Because they absolutely add and take away. There's a bunch of other translations that add or take away, which is horrible. But now wonder. 
is the last two verses. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Christ will come quickly. He will be coming. It will be a great wonder. So before we end this, I want to kind of just brief some stuff. So the no mores, right? In the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, there's no more sea. There's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more night, and no more curse. Eternal joy. And here's what's new. You have a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new world order, a new temple, a new light, a new paradise. Our new temple is the lamb himself. And I had to close out this because quite we, we read the last two chapters of Revelation. I had to compare the first book and the last book, right? So first, in Genesis, the beginning, said you see the sun created. In Revelation, the sun's not needed. Number two, Satan is victorious in Genesis, and in Revelation, Satan is defeated. Sins enter into the human race. Sin is banished in Revelation. In Genesis, people run and hide from God. In Revelation, people are invited to live with God forever. In Genesis, tears are shed with the sorrow of sin. In Revelation, all sin, tears, and sorrows are gone. In Genesis, people are cursed. In Revelation, God's people are in a glorified state. In Genesis, the garden and earth are cursed. In Revelation, the earth is made new. In Genesis, you have paradise lost. In Revelation, you have paradise regained. And in Genesis, people are doomed to death. And in Revelation, death is defeated and believers live forever with God. Why wouldn't you want to read Revelation? <laughs> Let's bow our heads before our questions. Lord, as we come into your presence and we thank you for allowing us to still be able to worship you openly. We thank you for that eternal promise to live with you and dwell with you. That you have always provided all of our needs and you will provide even more in our eternal state. Lord, we look to be with you for eternity. We wait on you, Lord. But I pray that many more come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And we lift these things up in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right.